You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday for worship at 8.30 or 10.45. Find out more at asburybosier.org. Thank you, Miles. I always feel like after Miles has prayed that we could just tie a bow on it, call it a worship service, and go home. But, you know, Matt is away at the happiest place in the world, you know, Disneyland. I know that shocks all of you. And he would just fall right off the Disneyland castle if I did that. So we'll continue on. And so as our children leave this morning, I'm going to open the word for you. And we're going to read together today out of Philippians. We're going to read Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Hear these words. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Sententia to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, my loyal companions, my yoke fellows, help these women. For they have struggled beside me in their work of the gospel together and with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understandings, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, beloved, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. And so today we are. We're in the fourth chapter of Philippians. This is Paul's letter that he wrote to his favorites, the Church of Philippi. These are his closing words to his dear friends in this fourth chapter. And they are far across the sea from what appears to be now his home in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier, and he is awaiting trial before the Emperor Nero. And as you read these verses, you can hear somewhat of a change in his tone that suggests that this passage consists of not only a letter of thanks, verses 2 through 7, but also a letter that's addressing somewhat of a conflict. He is telling the Philippians to stand firm. And I wonder why he feels like the Philippians need to grow stable. What is it that he needs to tell them about to have them stand firm? What's going on? Well, perhaps it is because he can actually identify a little bit with what's going on with them. They too are being persecuted by the Romans. They are pressured by unsaved Judaizers. They are being pressed in upon by unsaved Gentile grace abusers. They are partitioned by division. And so Paul says, stand firm against these painful trials. And so Paul reminds you, he reminds us that the Holy Spirit in you wants you to grow stable, wants you to be at peace and be calm. And, and although this letter, in this letter you can hear uh, all through it, the love that he has for these fine Philippians, these people, he calls them his joy. He says in verses, uh, I think it was the second chapter, 17 or so, 17 through 28, that his joy is incomplete without the Philippians. Paul constantly prays with joy for them, and I would venture to say that Paul's very salvation truly just does hinge in part on their faith. And what I mean by that is, you know, 
I can identify to a degree with, and I'm sure maybe even Matt would say the same thing, you know, it's our joy is intertwined with your joy, always is, in the unfolding drama that God is working in your lives. We're very invested. He was very invested. He loved these people. And we see with great joy the way God moves in and through the unlikeliest of people and the circumstances so profoundly unlikely. And so Paul begins this fourth chapter with what looks like a very mixed metaphor as he writes, therefore my brethren whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Now he's not talking about that crown that we get, uh, that we think of when we get to heaven, the one with all the jewels in it. It's really a, a translated metaphor. It's a, it's a metaphor about the uh, athletic nature of the Romans at that time. The victory wreath that you've seen pictured in like first century art, it's that intertwined, uh, usually branches and things like that, all twisted together to look as if they are made out of metal. And they place them on their hands of the winners or their head. But the crown itself is not really for the winner. It's not just for the winner or the athlete alone. It's also to the city that they represent and the people of that city, of their town. So he's saying, you are my joy and my crown. We stand together. And then he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. And he begins this chapter, he begins this chapter now in this chapter four with this word, therefore. And of course that means there's something before that that he's referring to that he wrote in chapter three. And I'll just remind you there, he was talking about running a race seeing life as an obstacle course. He writes how he runs this race by pressing on to the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And he's urging others to run with him. But in the opening verses of chapter four, he now says, well, stand firm. And it sounds confusing. What does he mean? Whether we want to run a race or we want to stand still, it's a picture of extreme effort or it's a picture of just being immobile or in action. And so how can we then follow this call to standing and yet running? I almost called this sermon running in place because that's kind of what it seems like to me. If we take him literally at his word, it is a little bit confusing, but nevertheless, thinking this through, and if you consider it, we have here what is a marvelous expectation of the paradox of the Christian life. For life is indeed swiftly moving. It's an obstacle race. We've all discovered that, and you know it. At every turn, there is a challenge there is a new demand made upon you. Time itself brings these things on. And so it is indeed a race that we are running. But the secret to running the race successfully, the apostle tells us, is learning how to stand still. Or that is, you know, just take that unchanging grip on the unchanging life of Jesus Christ within us. And this has been the theme of this marvelous letter. It tells us how there is a secret to the Christian life it is the fact that Jesus Christ lives within us, and in order to lay hold of that life, it's necessary that we quite willingly forego the exercise of our own life. He says this, he says, I have learned to count all things lost in order that I might gain Christ. The secret of running an obstacle race and overcoming all the problems is learning to get a solid grip on the life of Jesus Christ within you. So a great illustration that I found, you know those cable cars that run up and down the hills in San Francisco, our coveted and honored tourist attraction, been there for I don't even know how many years. 
And if you've ever stood there and listened or had an opportunity to be near them, you can hear the cables running underneath the street. So actually the cable car itself, it does not move. It's not, it does not have a motor. It is impossible to be self-propelled. The only possibility of movement is to take a firm grip on that cable, and you may have seen it. If you have, you know there's a guy called the grip man. That's what he's called, the grip man. And he's pulling those levers and pulling them back to grab hold and pulls back a little bit harder when they're just running uphill to be sure that they don't lose grip. And now that cable car, with relationship to the cable, never moves. It always remains standing firm. But the cable moves, and as it moves, that car is able to overcome all the obstacles, the steepest hills in San Francisco. And this is a beautiful picture of what Paul is saying. And for though we're running the race of life, we are continually confronted with obstacles, demands, and pressures that come upon us. The answer is not to try to do something, but to get a firmer grip on the life of Jesus Christ within us. And as we do that, we discover that we have an adequacy that handles all the obstacles. Paul is quite able to overcome all the problems, whatever life can throw at him, even in his circumstance. And in the rest of this letter, and especially through verse 9, Paul is summing up what he has written by applying this principle against their problems. We'll see that these are the problems, well, that we probably face every day sometimes more than one time a day. Maybe a personality problem. You know, he talked about Eudia, Euodia and Sintiche. I looked that word up so many times, I don't think I've said it the same twice in a row, that name. And, uh, but they've gotten sideways with each other and Paul is imploring them that even if they can't agree in one another, at the very least they can agree in the Lord. He says that these fine women have worked by his side and with his other companions and that their names are in the book of life. I think that's just got to be a, a rank above Facebook or Twitter or, you know, being on the front page news. And he says two things are needed to settle this difficulty. He said, and he brings it down again to practical applications. He says two things need to be done. First of all, agree in the Lord. And second of all, rejoice in the Lord. And in both you notice that the sphere of action is not with us. It is always with the Lord. So it's important to know is it important? I don't think so, to know what this quarrel is about, but we don't really need to know. Because whatever areas of disagreement there are, there is always vast areas of agreement in the Lord for believers. You know, so agreeing just means you find common ground, right? If you have someone you know that just their personality rubs you the wrong way, you feel like you're just going to have to go another way, do things differently. Our tendency is to do that, but you know, Paul says it's absolutely wrong as Christians. Separation between believers in Jesus Christ must never be permitted, and it's quite wrong to say that you have nothing in common. Christians always have something in common with the Lord. The apostles are urging these two ladies to get together and talk about those things first, and from that agreement, begin to work on the problem on which they disagree. The second activity is really the theme of this letter. It's what rolls through this whole letter, and that is rejoice in the Lord. Rejoicing in the Lord, always again I say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near, he says. So, in this anxiously ironic, spiritually seeking age, we need God's good news in this text. You know, unaffected, childlike rejoicing in the Lord is a hallmark of the Christian life. 
soaring over everything else that falls, that fills our church calendars. Joy is the command that we know well in Christ, certainly as we are beginning just anticipating moving into our Advent season. And for Paul, joy and life beyond constant worry come not when one has mastered this or that spiritually or any kind of particular spirituality, but when one perceives God's actions even amid difficulty and pain. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul writes, and it sounds so simple and yet joy is profoundly countercultural in the North American societies today. We think of joy as a private overflow of good feelings in response to happy circumstances. We often think joy is the point of life or even a right that we have. You know, it's that pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And so for Paul, joy is shared. It is not individual. It's a byproduct, not an end to itself. It's a discipline, not a right. It's a command, not an option. Joy is a discipline of perception. It's not an emotion dependent on circumstances. And one writer calls it this. He says, joy is a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in a particular way and are able to act in conformity with the unfolding story. Joy, a response formed in those who can read the economy of God's activity in particular ways and are able to act in conformity with that unfolding story. You know, Matt, over these last four weeks, we've talked about Tattoos on the Heart, amazing book, amazing stories in that book about the faithfulness of God and just how they are asked and we're asked through those stories to have that God's perspective, that holy perspective on circumstances and situations in people's lives. The, invent, the events in which, you know, Christians should read God's actions are not obvious. They're just most often counterintuitive. And for instance, a prison cell is an unlikely outpost of God's mission. Yet there Paul was. And, and Christ being preached from corrupt motives is hardly desirable. But Paul did. In fact, Paul rejoices in the place where he is, in a prison cell, chained to a Roman soldier. The Philippians also face unnamed opposition, but they too are to rejoice with Paul. Joy is not an escape from pain of life. It is a reconsideration. It's a reinvestment in life from a different and liberating perspective, if you will. We see the problems in this even as you add the layer of pressure, pressure that comes into our lives. And he says, have no anxiety about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then he says, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, it comes naturally to Paul that prayer should be intimately associated with joy in the Lord or rejoicing in the Lord. Prayer here is relationship with God. It's not a technique. And by perceiving and rejoicing in a living, unexpected presence in the world, even in difficult situation, one lets go of being one's own savior. And instead of worrying about anything, the Philippians are to bring everything to God. The anythings and the everythings in life can be sources of endless worry, and they can be sources of the stuff of prayer. You know, like joy, prayer is not an escape, but it is a practice of regarding the same painful circumstance from another angle, the one that is still open to multiple resolutions that God permits us to consider 
and ironically, leaving worry behind means disciplined action and attention of a different sort. And a, It's not a numb acceptance of things as they are. Paul says the Philippians are to keep on doing the things that they had learned and received and heard and seen in him. He said these things include how he views his struggles in prison as an opportunity for God, a struggle in which he sees the Philippians sharing. So it's really just so easy to say, don't worry, be happy. You know, there's a whole song about that. But how do we how do, we do it? You know, there was, a, I, there was a great thing that I read. Someone said, I have joined the Don't Worry Club. And now I hold my breath. I'm so scared I'm going to worry that I worry myself half to death. And isn't that just so what we do? You can't stop it just by the exercise of willpower. It takes really a good grip, maybe two, on the cable. That's the secret of running the race, and here it is. And everything by prayer and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I think we can use instructions sometimes on the practice of prayer. God is not saying that we should ask for everything that we want. He says that we should be asking for everything that we need, and frequently we find ourselves praying for things that he never, ever promised. For instance, if you are up against some kind of trial, some, cat, some catastrophe strikes in your life, our perfectly understandable human reaction is to say, Lord, take this away. But God never said that he would do that. The kind, that kind of prayer must be appended always in the same way that our Lord prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, and nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. But there are things that you can pray for. You can pray them immediately and ask and know that it will be received. You can pray for his grace, his strength, his insight, wisdom, patience, if you dare, <laughs> love, and compassion. And as we lean back on him and that inner dependence of faith, which is prayer, we can also begin to give thanks that the answer has come. And in our thanksgiving, we discover the experience of it as well. So as in everything, we let our requests be made known to God, and the result is always peace. The peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's a peace that grips you in the midst of distressing circumstances that you can't even believe and you wonder how you will ever explain it. It is a peace that passes all understanding. I've experienced it so many times myself. There is something about that that undergirds, sustains, and strengthens us to hang on. And lastly, there is that issue of perspective that we talked about earlier. He says, finally, brethren, whatever's true, honorable, pure, lovely, gracious, or excellent, anything worthy of praise, think about that and do so, and the God of peace will be with you. How often do you find that your whole attitude is set on a wrong direction by your imagining what would, what would or what could happen in a circumstance or situation? I'm so guilty of that. You know, the example, there's a man, he has a flat tire, it's the wee hours of the morning, and he's got no jack. And so he's got to go borrow one from his neighbor. And so as he's walking to his neighbor's house, he's automatically imagining how bad it is going to be for him. Oh, he's going to hate having to get up. It's going to be such an infraction on his nighttime sleeping, and he's going to get up, and he's going to have to get dressed. He's got to go to his garage. He may not even know where it is. And the more he thought about it and the further he walked, by the time he got to the door, 
he thundered on that door. And when the man came and he showed up and he said, well, you can just keep that darn jacket if that's the way you feel about it. And so, you know, it's oftentimes, it's just a deliberate choice of the will to refuse to think about the negative, but instead to think about the positive in any situation or about any person. And when you do, you're following the example of the Apostle Paul. And then there is that cable that powerful force that alone can make this possible on which we're to take that very strong grip. And then the God of peace will be with you. And if you set your mind to that, the God who dwells within will express himself in terms of peace rather than strife and confusion. So you see Christianity, well, it was meant for life. And I'm so impressed. I'm just so impressed by the fact that when Jesus came, he didn't talk to people about religion. He talked to them about life, about their work in the kitchen or in the shop or in the pumpkin patch or about how they lived and how they thought and they acted, about what they said to their children and to each other and how they got along with their neighbors. He didn't come and talk to them about theological problems or existential relationships or interpersonal demands. He came to talk to them about the way they were living and to show them what life is. That is the secret. It, that's the secret that is the person that dwells within you and that everything is designed to drive us back to that person. So like that grip man on the cable, on that big cable car, the bigger the hill, the firmer the grip. So, you know, life is not like Time Magazine. I wish it were. We're not divided up into sections, a page for politics, a page for religion, or a page for social life. It is intermingled. It's one unit. And if religion was presented as nothing more than a pouring out of a pious platitude, a theological idea, it really offers no help. And there's just no appeal to that to people. But when we hear words like these that speak life into our own hearts in the midst of the busy demands of our days, we can find ourselves standing firm, standing firm together, running in place, if you will, with a solid grip on the cable. And in Jesus Christ, we have the supreme answer to every obstacle and every demand, every pressure laid upon us. Paul says this, therefore, my brethren, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Our Holy Father, we are so aware of the failure in our lives to express the indwelling life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet we thank you for each failure, that from it we may learn how we need fully and continually to rest upon the one who is adequate the one who can be gracious in us and loving to the unloving and kind to the selfish and the ungrateful. Lord, we thank you for this is what you have been to us first of all. Lord, let us be intentional and deliberate in our choices to think about the positive. Let us be people who can agree in the Lord. Help us be reminded that when life is spinning out of control to take a firmer grip on that cable, to lean back and on to you, the giver and sustainer of our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.